Amen, amen. You can be seated. My name is Randy Little, and uh, it's a pleasure to preach today. Uh, we're going to be, we're going to, we're continuing our series of Exodus, and now we're going to land in the Ten Commandments. But before we get started, I want to give a little pitch about reclaiming families. And so my wife and I, we do a ministry through Legacy called Reclaiming Families. And if you haven't heard about it or haven't uh, checked into it, we would just encourage you to check it out. We do a podcast. We, um, we put out some stuff on social media. And we're just about reclaiming families. We want to see families built up and strengthened. So we want you to um, check out the content that we're putting out and learn and strengthen your own family. And one thing we particularly love is when psychology lines up with the Christian worldview. Like my wife is learning to be a clinical counselor, and so she's going through all these uh, clinical studies and stuff like that. And, and we just love it when they line up, such as human development. Okay, now human development is fascinating. And we've got a podcast. You can check it out on human development. And it's so wild how the Christian worldview lines up with what psychologists say you should develop like. And so it's, uh, it's very fascinating. Check it out. Um, another thing that I've, I've read a book recently, and it's about how do you pass on your values to your children? Now, if you're a parent, you're asking, how do I pass my values on to my children? How do I, how do I get them to believe what I believe about who God is? And, and one of the things it said that you should do to pass your values on to your children is have an authoritative parenting style. You should have rules in your home. There should be, you know, laws, and they should be enforced. There should be high standards, but also a warm and loving home. And when you pair those two together, you are not, not guaranteed, but you're more likely clinically to pass your values on to your children. And we thought that's fascinating. So when you have rules, high standards, you end up overall, like large portion-wise, you end up having more resilient children who do better in life. And, you know, I think it's wild that, um, I think it's a picture of God and his rules, God and his laws. And uh, when we're, we're, we're the authority of the home, we're the picture that, when parents are the authority of the home, we're a picture that God is the authority over creation. And when there's rules in the home, we're the, we're the picture that God is a God who rules with the rule of law. And so I think it's very fascinating. And uh, let's look at the Ten Commandments. Let's look at the rule of law. But first, let me pray for us, and let's get started. God, I uh, thank you that you are a good God. And God, who am I to, to preach your word? God, it's so incredible how you would use myself to preach your word. And God, it's your word that has power. And you are a good God, a holy God, a great God. And I pray that today that we would learn about who you are. God, that we would be built up, God, to follow you and to walk after you. In your name we pray, amen. All right, we are looking at Exodus 19 and 20, but I'm going to read Exodus 20. Uh, we won't do all 19 and 20. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the, the, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son, your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid. They trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So I just want to paint a picture of where we are right now, that Israel was enslaved in Egypt, and God brought them out of Egypt with plagues, and, and he showed his power and might against the Egyptians, and he delivered them from Egypt. And then they come out of Egypt, and they come to the, the Red Sea, and they think they're trapped and stuck, and then God, with his might, with his power, he splits the Red Sea, and the Israelites walk on dry land. And then as the Egyptians come in and pursue, God destroys them. He delivers them from the Egyptians. Then they're wandering in the wilderness and they're grumbling. And then they, they get manna. And then they finally come to this place called Mount Sinai. And it's an absolutely incredible sight. They, they camp at the base of Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up and meets with God. And then God speaks the Ten Commandments out of Mount Sinai. I thought, I, I didn't know he did that. But God actually speaks out of this mountain the Ten Commandments to the Israelites. And his voice is so powerful. It's such a holy sight that the people tremble. They say, Moses, you speak to us. We cannot have God speak to us. We will die. It's just too much. God is such a holy God. And this is a mighty display of his holiness. It talks about he comes down and he consumes the mountain with fire and smoke. God is a holy God. And then also the people, they are afraid, they fear. You know, and it says in Deuteronomy 5.28, and the Lord heard your words when they said, Moses, you speak to us. Don't let God speak to us when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I've heard the words of this people in which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they may have such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it may go well with them and for their descendants forever. And so God even has, God says, oh, I wish that my people were always like this. They always had the right fear of me. You see, there's two images of God in the Bible that we, the church, need to hold up. One is the prodigal son's father, eager to call his children home. And the second one is a consuming fire who hates sin. And both of them are at the right picture of who God is. And the Ten Commandments, Mount Sinai, it's a, I mean, there is both involved here, but it's really a picture, too, of God as an all-consuming fire. 
And so he gives the moral law, the Ten Commandments, what we call the moral law. And so in the, the Old Testament, there's a lot of laws. And theologians kind of break them down into three different categories. You have the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. And I believe that the Ten Commandments are unique from the civil and ceremonial law. So you, the civil and ceremonial law, I would say, are to define a people, define Israel, and to make them a group, a unique group set apart from the rest of the world. And Scripture says that salvation comes from the Jews. And so when Jesus was born, this group was marked off by these laws. And then the Messiah comes from this group. And I think at that point, the civil laws and the ceremonial laws were fulfilled. They had set this group apart. Because in Jesus' own time, he starts saying things like, the ceremonial and civil laws would be things like, don't eat pork, right? Eat certain kinds of animals, not this animal. Wear this, don't wear this. But Jesus says, hey, it's not what goes into you that defiles you. It's what goes out of your heart that defiles you. And then Peter sees a vision, too. God gives Peter a vision. And it's a bunch of unclean animals. And God says, kill them and eat them. And Peter's like, no, I won't do it. I, I won't do it. And he says, no, Peter, don't, don't call unclean what I call common. Like what I've called clean. Don't, don't, don't do that. And so we see there's a sense where those laws, there's some laws that are done away with. And we don't have to keep it anymore. We don't have to feel guilty if you like me and you love to eat sausage every morning for breakfast. But the Ten Commandments, I believe they are different. I don't believe they've had a fulfillment in the same way. And for three different reasons. One is the Ten Commandments were spoken by God from the mountain. God spoke them himself. And two, they were placed on tablets of stone and they were put into the, the Ark of the Covenant. Now that was a... This is really like the throne of God inside the temple. It's the, in the Holy of Holies, there's a mercy seat built above the ark, and God would come and he would dwell right above this mercy seat. He would dwell there. And these commandments were placed inside of the ark. And I think it gives new meaning to things like Psalm 96 too. It says, clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. See, in the foundation of his throne are these ten commandments. And I think it's very interesting. And also, Jesus, he sums up and he affirms the moral law. Somebody comes to him and they say, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? And he really repeats just Deuteronomy 6, that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And he says the second is like it. You should love your neighbors yourself. And that's easily a summary of the Ten Commandments. The first four, to love the Lord your God. And the second six, to love your neighbor as yourself. So we see that he reinforces it, but also he gives a heart component to many of the laws. He says, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I say, do not hate. That, that, that's what leads to murder. And he says, you've heard it say, don't commit adultery, but I tell you, do not lust. And so he even adds a heart component to the Ten Commandments. And also... He says that the moral law is perpetual. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so we see there's this idea that Jesus has, that some laws have been fulfilled, but some are here to stay. They're good laws. As we look through the Old Testament too, 
it is so evident that God is very serious about his laws. He is a holy God. He is set apart from us. He dwells in unapproachable light, the Bible says. And he cares about his law. See, what does it matter if what we think about God's law? It really matters what the judge thinks about God's law. See, God is the law giver, and he is the judge that holds you accountable to the laws that he has given. And so it doesn't matter what we think about the laws. It's what does God think about his laws. And you see things in the Old Testament that are probably very striking to us today. You see that there's a child, and he disobeys his parents. He's lost the fear of God. He doesn't care about God's law. He's lost the fear of God. And he disobeys his parents, and he's unruly. And they bring this child to Moses and say, what's to be done to this child? God says, kill him. He's to die. That child is to die. He has broken my law. We see there's another man. He's picking up sticks on the Sabbath. And he's just lost the fear of God. He doesn't care about God's commandment to keep the Sabbath holy. And he's not being mindful of God. And he's just picking up sticks. And they see this man, and they say he's breaking God's law, and they bring him to Moses, and God says, he's to die. He broke my law. There's another man who's found committing adultery with another man's wife. He says, bring them both out. They've lost the fear of me. They've, they don't care about my law. They are to die. Put them to death. There's another man who murders somebody, who lies in wait and sees somebody coming, and he hates him, and, and he strikes him and kills him, murders him. And God says, that person is to die. Put him to death. And it's so wild, too. When you look at Scripture, a lot of these passages where people are being told to kill that person, God says things like, don't even pity them. Have no pity. Continue. Kill them. They have transgressed my law. And I think it's a picture of the consuming fire of God, how serious God is about his law. And in judgment, God weighs you against his Ten Commandments. He weighs you against the moral law. And so who is God that he has the right to rule, the right to give laws, and, to, and to be the right to give the consequences of these laws? Well, in short, he's the creator. We are his creation. This whole world, this whole planet, God has created it. So he has every right to rule it. He has every right to rule us. Every right to make laws, to give commandments to how we should be. And then another thing that people in the Old Testament, in the laws, it's, it's uh, people try to say, you know, that in the Old Testament, God was a God of wrath. But in the New Testament, God is a God of mercy. And really from the Bible, you see that God is the same God yesterday, today, and forevermore. He's unchanging. He hasn't changed. He's a just God who condemns lawless action in the Old Testament, those who break his law, and he's still today a just God who condemns lawless action. And so, why the law? What's the purpose of it? One is it displays the character of God. See, God is not a liar. So he gives commands, do not, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. He's not a murderer. He doesn't steal. It, it displays God's character. He's always a faithful God. And then two, the purpose of the law is to conform us into his image, to make us like him. It's a guide for how God's people, how he intended us to act. It's to conform our actions and not be transgressors. And this was the failure of the law, of the old covenant law. 
And uh, Hebrews 8.8 8 says, for if the first covenant had been faultless, which there was a fault, there's something wrong with the first covenant, with the law. There would be no occasion to look for a second. It says, for he finds fault with them, or he finds fault with the people. See, God's law is good. The moral law is good. It's right. There's nothing wrong with it. But what God says there's something wrong with is there's something wrong with people. There's something wrong with us. We don't keep God's law. We don't obey God. We're lawbreakers. And the third purpose of the law is to condemn lawbreakers, right? You, you have a standard of, of how you should be, and then it condemns everybody who doesn't meet this standard. You see, sin in its essence is lawlessness. 1 John says, 3, 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. It's a heavy topic, but it's just true that we have a horrible problem. You and I together, we're all in this boat of sinful lawbreakers. We call it original sin, and it's an inclination to disobey God's word, disobey God's laws. You see, Adam, he disobeyed God's laws in the garden. You see, Israel, after God had given these laws in such a powerful display of God's holiness, that they continued to rebel and disobey God's laws. You see that we also, we disobey God's laws. If Let's just look at one commandment. And I think we, it doesn't take a lot of, of discussion to, to really realize that we have broken God's law. But we'll just look at one. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Your ne- you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So how many people here today could say that you have never coveted anything? You've never coveted the riches of wealthy people. You've never wanted a different spouse if you're married, or maybe different children. You've never been flipping through Instagram and looking at everybody's life and being like, oh, yeah, I wish I had that. I want that. I want that life. If we looked at all ten commandments, we would see that we have broken all ten of them. I've broken all of God's commandments. And Paul makes this point in Scripture. He says that no one is righteous, no one is good, not one in the book of Romans. And he also says something very fascinating. He says there's no fear of God before their eyes. And that's one of the reasons that we're so lawless is that we don't have the right view of God. We don't seem to consider God as great as the judge, as the holy God, as the consuming fire who hates lawlessness. You see, it doesn't feel good to be in front of a judge. Now, my mom is here and she'll be like, wait, what? How do you know what it's like to be in front of a judge? But, uh, yeah, I, it doesn't matter what I went in front of the judge for, but I've been in the courtroom where I had to go <laughs> in front of the judge. And, uh, and I remember looking in the back of the room, it's like, there's the cop that, that, uh, that, you know, that caught me breaking the law. He was there. And, and I'm with all these lawless people. We're all kind of waiting to go up before the judge. And I remember they call my name, and I stand up, and I'm uh, walking forward, and I'm approaching this bench, and the judge sits high up above me. 
And I have to come forward. And at this time too in my life, I was really timid and shy. But even today, there'd be a part of me that would just be fearful. I would just be afraid to be a lawbreaker and to come before a judge. Because my whole life, or not my whole life, it wasn't that bad, but it was... Uh, my, the outcome of what I did lied in the hands of the judge. He determined the consequences for my lawlessness. And so there's a sense of, you know, in, in that day, in that moment, when I was in the courtroom, I was like, you know, I wish I never did that. I wish I had this kind of fear of breaking the law, and it would kept me from breaking the law. It didn't feel great. I'll tell you that. See, God is a great God, and he is a judge. Hebrews 10.31 says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a fearful thing because all of us are lawless people. We've all broken God's law. And so, you know, what do we do? What do we do with this struggle of being people who have broken God's law, understand that, you know, we're guilty, what do we do? Well... There's a few different things. One is we just try to forget the law. And this is where, you know, maybe an, an atheist would come and say, God is not true. His laws are made up. Those laws are made up. We don't have to keep them. We don't have to do that. And so Nietzsche, he was a famous philosopher, really smart guy. He wrote a book called The Death of God. And, and he had these ideas that you can make up your own morality. Make up your own values. You decide what's right and wrong. And our culture has largely ran with his ideas. You just look at Netflix or, or any of the, the new social, like popular, what's popular today in popular culture. And it's this idea that you do you. You make up your own morality. Don't you let anybody tell you what you're doing is wrong. But it's wild that the reality is that you may harden your heart and you may think that. But you can't instruct your conscience. Your conscience is something other that, that instructs you. And it bears witness to your faults. See, I've, I've shared my faith with friends of mine that have been just atheists and they don't believe in God, they completely reject it. But at the same time, they don't want to talk about shame and guilt. Because for some reason, they still feel it. They still, we all still have a sense of shame and guilt and our conscience kind of bears witness to it. See, you can't escape God's moral laws because they're written onto the fabric of our hearts, our conscience. Romans 2.14 says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the, law, the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And so not even an atheist could say, I make up my own morality. They can't. Nobody can. We're made in God's image. God made us. And now we might harden our hearts. We can harden our hearts and we can say, no, I won't do it. Or, or we can kind of sear our conscience. But there's always a part of us that bears witness to the fact that we are guilty and we feel shame. Even if we don't fully understand it. And then two, if we're not trying to just forget the law... In the church, this is kind of what happens in churches, we call it legalism. We try to tip the scales. We think of God's laws as kind of this 
okay, I've done a lot of wrong, but I can actually do a lot of right. And I can make the right, my, my good deeds better than my bad deeds. I can, I can keep more commandments than, than I've broken. I can live a better life. I can be a better person. And that's where we really, legalism is in essence trying to justify ourselves because we know that, hey, God has given his laws and we do feel shame, we do feel guilt, and we think that the way to relieving our shame and our guilt is to do more good deeds, keep God's law, obey God's law. We think that we can make good on our faults, right our wrongs, discipline ourselves so we never break God's law again. But the dreadful reality is that you cannot go back and erase your past. God doesn't allow you to. You're not allowed to erase your past apart from Christ. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So James is, it's really kind of this picture of like a law of glass. Okay, a big glass, perfect glass sheet. And it's perfect. There's been no transgression of it, no, no hit on the glass. But if you've ever broken glass before, you realize that it really just takes one hit. One break. One crack. And the glass falls to the ground in, in thousands of little pieces. And, and you have no hope of ever picking up these pieces and putting them back together. You have transgressed the law. And that's the reality. See, the Ten Commandments, they're actually, this is probably one of our least favorite passages in the Bible. Because it reveals our sin. Our failings. And we hate to consider our moral failings. They're too great. And really the consequences are too great. There's a mountain of evidence against us when we look at the Ten Commandments. They say, you're condemned. You're at fault. And God is just in condemning you. He gave you good laws. He even wrote them on the fabric of your heart, and yet still you've disobeyed, you've rebelled, and you have broken God's law. And you think by being legalistic, by trying to do good, that you're coming to God on his terms. You're like, look, I'm keeping your laws now. But you're not. You're not coming to God on his terms. It's his terms are perfection. And you have been, we've all been not perfect. We've all been transgressors. You're condemned, and the law is not the way to righteousness and life. But Jesus is. You see, he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law. But I've come, or I've oh, abolished the law and prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You see, Jesus, what's incredible about him is that he keeps the law of God. He obeys God perfectly. He keeps his commands and he acquires this perfect record of righteousness that you and I don't have. So you can't go back and erase your past. And that's why Jesus has to come and rescue you. He comes as a rescuer. He achieved where you failed. And he conquered where you landed in defeat morally.
And Jesus dies as a substitute for us. He takes his perfect record and he says, and I will give my perfect record of law keeping and I will give it to people, to believers. You see, the lawgiver in Mount Sinai becomes a man and becomes the law keeper who becomes a substitute for lawbreakers. Let me repeat that again. The holy God of Mount Sinai, consuming fire, God becomes a man in the person of Jesus Christ and is a law keeper. And he dies as a substitute for lawbreakers. And then Jesus, he rose from the dead. It's incredible. He says there's, there's even life after death. Not only are you not condemned, but there's eternal life, and it's a good life, a great life, a life with himself, a life of law-keeping and, and, uh, and goodness and, and, and no failures, no lying and cheating and pain. It's all done away with. And so what makes the difference between the one who is a lawbreaker and is condemned and a lawbreaker who is not condemned? Well, it's really Jesus Christ. Jesus says, everybody who looks to me, who comes to me, who submits to me, who embraces me. See, Jesus says, I promise that I will save you. I will deliver you. I will give you my perfect record of righteousness. If you will come to me, I will not cast you out. I won't do it, but I will deliver you from condemnation. Romans 8 says, there's therefore, no, no, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So Paul is saying that when you come to Christ, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. That God puts his spirit in believers. That you are born again. There's this process of being born again. And you have God's Holy Spirit. And if you have God's spirit dwelling in you, then you have life. Even though that you have broken God's law, you've been a transgressor, you now have this holy, perfect record in you by the Holy Spirit. And he makes you justified, just as if you've never broken the law and just as if you've always obeyed the law. But what are we coming to Jesus for? Is it not the deliverance from our lawlessness? Right? The deliverance from breaking God's law is why we come to Christ. And that leads us to the process of sanctification. And so this is process of being coming increasingly godly, increasingly like Christ. Ezekiel says, 36, 26, and I will give you a new heart, telling about this, the coming of the Holy Spirit. I will give you a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. See, God doesn't just leave us with a heart that wants to disobey us, obey God, but he changes our hearts and gives us the Holy Spirit and begins to conform us to himself, to make us godly. And so that looks like keeping the law. See, we as believers, we are saved to keep the moral law. We're saved to keep them through faith in Christ. That, that Christ is the same God who spoke the Ten Commandments. We don't have to keep them for righteousness, 
to be, to be right before God. That's what Jesus does. But this process of sanctification, we are being saved to keep the commands of God. And so that looks like things like studying the Ten Commandments. And things like do not steal, they don't become just do not steal or take something of somebody else's that, you know, you have a, a cup and I just take it, I steal it. But it's a, no, we don't steal anything. Because God doesn't steal anything, we want to be like him. So we don't steal intellectual property, right? We don't cheat on tests. We do these things because we are becoming conformed to the image of Christ. God is saving us from our lawlessness. And also, it's how we show submission and love to God. See, when we feel a temptation to lie, you know, I want to lie to get my way or, or cheat or steal, we have a sense of, but God says don't. Don't do it. And I'm going to submit myself to God, to his authority, submit myself under him. I'm going to keep his law. It's also how we express our love to God is law-keeping. John 14, 5 says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, is what Jesus says. And so not keeping his commandments to justify ourselves before God, but to express our love, our submission to the Lord. We keep the law. And God is also saving us to a right fear of himself. See, it is true that God is this consuming fire. He hates sin. And he is to be feared. Luke 12, 5 says, but I warn you, this is Jesus speaking, I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed you has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. See, as believers with the Holy Spirit in us, we should have this right sense of who God is, that he is holy. He is set apart. He does dwell in unapproachable light. He is the prodigal son's father that welcomes us and, and calls us back to himself. But he's also the consuming fire that hates lawlessness and he hates sin. And that's one of the things that drives us away from lawlessness is that God hates it. And the fear of him, of how holy he is, guards us from lawlessness. And so where do you view the laws and the commands of God? Is maybe where have you just been passing over them? Thinking, hey, they're not that important. God's commands are, are a kind of a light thing. And where do you lack a, a fear of God, a right view of God? I would say that we need to repent. And where are you trusting your own righteousness, maybe your own law-keeping, your own good behaviors, your own law-keeping to justify you before God? You won't be saved that way. You're saved by looking to Christ and trusting his righteousness and not your own. And so we're going to transition to a time of communion. We've got these communion cups. And communion is actually just a, a response to God and he is a good God who has delivered us, who has become our sacrifice for us so that we don't have to die. We've uh, we got Tyler coming around. If you can just raise a hand, he'll give you a communion cup. And uh, this is the time we want to remember that Christ is our substitute for lawless people. And it was his joy. It's the Lord's joy to save us, to deliver us from our lawless deeds. It's, it's so incredible. 
But his saving, it was not without pain. And so I've got to get my cup out here. You can break these. Uh, there's, there's little layers to these things if I can do it. I probably can't do it now. But uh, anyways, if you can, peel off your top layer. There's a little wafer. And, and uh, as a church, we want to take communion. We want to remember that this wafer represents, it symbolizes that Jesus broke his body for us, to save us, to deliver us. So if you can, take this wafer and uh, do it in remembrance of the Lord. <laughs> Couldn't get it open. And likewise, Jesus shed his blood to save us at Calvary. He shed his blood and sacrificed himself for us. And, and let's take this in remembrance of him. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you so much that you are a good God. God, you are a savior. And God, you have saved us from our lawlessness. God, our records of wrong, that we now come before you. God, pure before you, righteous before you, because of your righteousness, what you've done for us. God, we thank you and we pray that you would grow us and make us like yourself. In your name we pray. Amen.